Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. We know, Lord, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we committed the, the, the very sins that we have just read. And yet, Lord, by your grace and in due time, you saved us and delivered us out of darkness, and you gave us Christ. You richly poured out upon us the grace of the Holy Spirit to convert our hearts, to change us and to give us a new mind, a mind for holy and heavenly things, not for the things of the world anymore. We thank you, Lord, that now we are saved by grace through faith. Teach us now from this passage what it means to understand these truths and how we ought to live accordingly. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, throughout this letter to Titus, Titus, a young pastor, the Apostle Paul has been addressing various issues that arise in the church. And at this point in chapter 3, he's going to remind Titus about the kind of approach he should have to ministry. It seems as though he has emphasized this aspect of what Titus used to be, or what we as Christians used to be like, in order for us to understand how we approach others who are in the same condition. How we should approach others who are in the same condition. Because it's very easy for us to forget the way we were. The way we were before Christ and outside of Christ. And one of the basic problems that we all face is the lack of submission. Lack of submission to higher authorities. Lack of submission ultimately to God but to any authority that is above us. This is why in Titus 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. Remind them. It's necessary to be reminded. The Bible talks of reminders such as in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 15, the apostle Peter, before he dies, tells them that it is necessary and good for them to be reminded of the things of God. Those who hear this word reminder or those who are uh, told something of the Bible and it is repeated to them, those who have a humble heart, those who want, want to understand God and submit to Him, will submit even when they are reminded. They won't object and they won't kick and scream and say, I already know that, don't tell me that again. That's not the way it should be. It should be that one is humble and meek and kind when he is reminded of the things that he must do. Here, to be subject to rulers, to authorities. To be subject to rulers and authorities is the same thing as obeying them, the same thing as doing whatever they say. 
When we have rulers and authorities telling us what needs to happen, what should be done, then we ought to obey. Now, these rulers and authorities, whether they are in the local church or in civil society, we ought to obey what they say, whether in the church and in society. Perhaps in this passage, he has more in mind in society than in the local church. However, we do know from this epistle, his concern is also that those who are being taught the word understand what it means to be under the one who, taught, uh, who is teaching them so that they correctly follow what he says according to the Bible. This passage in verse 1 assumes that whenever the civil authorities outside the church and the authorities inside the church are doing things and saying things and teaching things that match up with Scripture, then we ought to obey them. When they don't match with Scripture, then we don't obey them, but then we take the proper recourse in order to make sure that we are handling the issue properly within the church and in society. But when they do tell us what to do, when they do give us laws and they give us commands, they give us rules that we ought to obey according to the Word, that match the Word of God, then we should happily and joyfully obey those and call on others to obey the same. So, then he says, to be ready for every good deed. Instead of disobedience, instead of the lack of subjection, there ought to be a willingness, a, an eager desire to be ready with alacrity perform every good deed. Every good deed. Whatever is good. Instead of doing evil and then be punished, that is, either be punished in, in that one is rebuked and disciplined within the local church or one is punished by the civil government. When, instead of being punished, why not do every good deed? Why not seek to do that which is right and good, both for our brothers in Christ in the church and for our neighbors, just as we love ourselves, love our neighbors outside the church. Every good deed must be performed. He stresses good deeds throughout this letter. If we have not noticed already, let's notice a few of the places or, or all the places where he says that we ought to do good. In Titus 1 verse 8, he says, but hospitable, loving what is good. Loving what is good. In Titus 1 16, he speaks of those who are pretenders in the church and he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. <clears throat> Titus 2, verse 3. The older women, he instructs them, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Titus himself, as a young pastor, Titus 2.6, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. And then he continues in Titus 2, verse 14, describing our salvation and grace in Christ that's given to us. Verse 14 says, And who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. And our verse, Titus 3, 1. And also Titus 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And Titus 3, 14. 
And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. He stresses the fact that true Christians perform good deeds, not for their salvation, and he will mention that in a moment, not for salvation, but as the fruit of salvation. It manifests itself in one's life when one is truly saved from sin, when his heart has truly been changed, then it manifests itself. In this case, he's expecting these good deeds even for the Cretans. Even for the Cretans, he's expecting these good deeds. And why do I say even for the Cretans? Because in Titus 1, verse 12, Titus 1, verse 12, he describes how wicked the Cretans are. They are notoriously wicked. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a description of one of their countrymen describing their citizens. This is the way the people are. And then the apostle says in verse 13, this testimony is true. The apostle testifies and says that prophet or poet, that philosopher among the Cretans, he's right in what he's saying about his own people. That's the way they are. Why is that important? It's important because no matter how wicked people are, no matter how hopeless it seems, we still need to preach that the true grace of God produces good deeds in the true believer. Good deeds in the true believer, no matter how hopeless the situation looks. Now, in verses 2 to 3, he describes what our condition used to be outside of Christ. What we should be doing now and how we ought not to obey, uh, how not, we should not um, behave. To malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We as Christians, practicing good deeds, we ought not to malign anyone. To malign is to say something that's false or evil about somebody else. When we say something that's evil about somebody else, we are maligning them. It's not a true statement about the other person. It's unfactual about the other person. When that happens, then that is uh, malignant, or that is maligning the person. So we should never, we should never ever dare to say anything that's false about somebody else. To be uncontentious. Uncontentious means we are not seeking quarrels and fights. We don't go around looking for ways to pick on people and to fault find with them. We should not be malcontents, discontented constantly, day by day, and especially in the local church. That should not happen, whether in family or church or wherever we go. That should not be the case with us. We should not be contentious people. This does not mean we cannot fight the good fight of faith, which he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are supposed to fight the good fight of faith, faith but we're not supposed to be quarrelsome uh, nitpickers, fault finders, looking for ways to constantly be negative and bring up things with people, especially those things that are petty and useless. But instead, we should be gentle. Gentleness is a characteristic and, and, uh, of a Christian and fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Gentleness is one of those fruits of the Spirit. Those who are unbelievers don't care for gentleness, typically speaking. They don't care for, for gentleness. They will say and do whatever they want for their own benefit. But we ought to be gentle. 
showing every consideration for all men. Showing every consideration for all men. This is an important statement. We have a parallel in Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We ought to do good to all men. As he says here, show every consideration for all men. He uses this phrase, all men, to stress the fact that we should not just be kind and gentle to those in the church, but also those outside the church. Don't look at them as hopeless cases. Don't look at them as people that would never believe. In fact, in many cases, those people that we thought were hopeless cases end up coming to Christ and bearing much fruit in Christ. No matter what their sins are, no matter what the wickedness that they practice, whether in family or in society, they come to Christ. Therefore, we ought to show consideration. This does not mean, to show consideration for all men does not mean we never mention their sin, we never preach the gospel to them, that we're always quiet and we always smile at them no matter what they say or do. That's not what he means by showing every consideration for all men. What he means is, according to the biblical prescriptions on how to treat people, that's how we should treat them. And don't uh, separate ourselves completely from them to the point that we have no ability to preach the gospel to them. That's what he means. Don't immediately assume that they are hopeless people that in that there's no way that they would be saved. He's not talking about, in this case, showing every consideration for all men. He's not meaning that there does not ever come a point when you need to separate from unbelievers or you need to separate even from <coughs> professing believers those who are so-called Christians in the church. He's not meaning that. What he's talking about is our demeanor or our disposition towards them. We ought to consider them as candidates for the gospel. That's what he means by showing every consideration for all men. Why? Verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves. We also were foolish. This is why. What if people never preached the gospel to us? What if people never did anything for, our, for us and for the, the teaching of the Bible so that we hear about Christ and how to be saved from our sins? What if they did that to us? They did not do that to us because God commanded them in one way or another, either internally or, uh, or by the word, commanded them to go and say something. And they did. They say, said something to us. They preached the gospel to us. And that's why we are saved from our sins. We have to re be reminded constantly of how we used to be. Right. So that that brings us down in terms of hu uh, humility. We ought to be humble in the way that we look at other people. And the source of humility here is to consider our past. We were foolish. We weren't wise. We did not have the wisdom of God. We did not have the word of God. We did not have the mind of Christ. We did not have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of wisdom dwelling within us. We had nothing like that. We were devoid of all those things. We were also disobedient. We were disobedient. We constantly rejected the truths of God. Now, in many cases, we did not blatantly do so, but we did so at least internally if not externally, we did so internally, we disobeyed God. And even, as he says 
in verse 5 that he saves us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The disobedience we had before we were Christians was all disobedience. Because whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That means that even when we were unbelievers and we got married, we had children, we respected our parents, whatever and to whatever extent we did those things as an unbeliever, though they are good in a horizontal and human sense, in a civil sense they are good things and people should be doing those things, but in the sense of our relationship to God and salvation and merit before God, they are considered disobedience. Because we cannot say, well, I, I obeyed my parents better than my siblings, so I should go to heaven. <laughs> or anything like that that we might present, we cannot do that. God considers it disobedience because whatever is not from faith is sin. And Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And that faith must be given as a gift of God to us. That's when the good works and the good deeds, in a true sense, in this biblical sense in Titus, that's when it begins. We were deceived as well. We thought highly of ourselves. We thought lowly of other people. We thought that we were just fine in the sight of God. We thought that, well, if I just do this or that, or do a little uh, more good than bad throughout my life, in the end, I'll be just fine when I come and meet God, and I'll get to heaven. And in some cases, people think everybody gets to heaven one way or another. There is no hell. There's no punishment. There's no need to believe in Christ. People are deceived. They think about themselves in a wrong way, and they think about others in a wrong way, and they think about God in the wrong way. The devil is the master of deception, which he started in Genesis chapter 3, and he continues to do that. He blinds the, the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. the God of this world blinds the mind of the unbelieving. So this, is our, what, this was our condition, and this is the condition of all unbelieving and lost people. We were also enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Various lusts, evil desires, and pleasures. This is how we were enslaved. We think, as unbelievers... No, I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave. I'm free. I'm able to do whatever I want to do. I'm not, I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm not a, sl- a slave in any societal sense. There's, I don't have any master telling me and dictating to me what I need to do day by day. I'm not a slave in that sense. I'm not a slave to any person. I'm not a slave to my parents, my, my spouse. I'm not a slave to anybody, my employer. No, I do whatever I want to do. That's the deception. And in fact, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whatever a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For by whatever a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Whatever lusts and pleasures they are. There is slavery to those things as an unbeliever. And Jesus said in John 8, 34, and 35, he who commits sin is the slave of sin. Right. Right. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
The one who commits sin is a slave of sin. There's no qualifications. We are slaves of sin. As he says here, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Further, spending our life in malice and envy. We spend our life in malice and envy. Having this evil suspicion and and negative uh, uh, assumptions towards other people. We are malicious towards them. We think that they are all out to get us. We think that they are all wrong. We think that we are better than they are. We're also envious of them. We see what they have. We see what they possess, whether it's natural abilities, things that are endowed by God. We see what God has given as natural gifts to other people, and we're envious of that. Or it may be even what they have accumulated, what they own. We look at what they own, how they dress, and we are envious of them, and we want to be like them. We want to keep up with them. And then that drives us into sin, and it causes contention and friction in relationships when this malice and envy occur. We were hateful and hating one another. Hateful, full of hate, and then we actually did hate other people. We had hate, and we hated other people. Here, this hatred is an unjustifiable hatred. This is what the apostle means. He's not talking about justifiable hatred, because in a sense, we are supposed to hate in a, in a good sense, biblically speaking. Luke 14, Luke 14 and verse 25, Jesus actually tells us that we ought to hate. Luke 14, 25, Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple if he does not hate all those people, including himself. So what he means is, when we ourselves or others around us are teaching and doing things that are contrary to God, we must hate it. And this is what we must do with our own sin before we can become a disciple of Christ. So in that sense, we're supposed to hate. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. From Psalm 119, verse 128, and verse 104. David even taught that when we see falsehood in us or in other people, those are the things we ought to hate. But when we see people who do not deserve hatred, we cannot unjustifiably hate them and harbor hatred inside of us. He described the way we were. He described the way people are now devoid of the gospel. But a change has happened. And this also should remind us of what we are now, what our status is now in Christ. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The difference between verses 2 and 3 is God. 
in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. When God's kindness appeared. God's kindness is what changed the whole situation. The whole equation changed when God intervened. This is what he's talking about here. He's not saying that God saw something good in us. Yes, we are created in the image of God, but that image has been marred and corrupted. It's not because he saw the image in us necessarily, because the image of God is in every person. In a corrupt state, it's in every person. So why is it that we are saved and they're not saved? Even forever and ever. Because there is heaven and there is hell. It was the kindness of God. It was nothing good in us. It was not our will, not our good will, not our free will, no good deed that we did in the past. Nothing like that. There's nothing that He chose as the basis for His love for us. It was simply His kindness, the kindness of God our Savior, and His love for mankind. It was His kindness and His love for mankind. When it says for mankind, he's saying in contrast to animals and plants and rocks and stars and whatever else. He's not saying that this kindness and love for mankind means that every person who ever lives receives this love and kindness. That's not what he means in context. We know he doesn't mean this because elsewhere also the Apostle Paul and the rest of Scripture speak clearly of the fact that there is heaven and there is hell eternally And some go to heaven and others go to hell. We know that. Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The eternal punishment and the eternal life are both eternal. According to Matthew 25, 46. So, this kindness and love is a specific, directed, special love. It has to be. Because it says in verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. He saved us. Notice that. The object is us, the church, which he has emphasized already in the first part of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. He's speaking there of being chosen or election. And then also in Titus 2, 11 to 14, notice the objects of these verbs. For the grace of God has appeared, similar expression to chapter 3, the appearance of God's grace, bringing salvation to all men. Who are these all men? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This grace that appears in verse 11, Titus 2.11, produces all of these results, which means that the all men or the mankind of Titus 3.4 means that it is for all kinds of people throughout the world to believe in this truth. It's not just for one group of people, one language, one ethnicity. It's for all languages, all ethnicities, all nations around the world. 
They are the objects of, of this love. And this is why we find that God's grace throughout history, it reaches and touches an individual in this one group, 10 in the other one, 55 in another one, and however it works. This is why it happens that way and why the whole tribe never believes and why the whole family never believes. Because God is picking here and there those whom he has chosen. So he saves us this way. Verse 5. Now he reiterates, not because of anything in us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. He does not do it on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. No thing, nothing he sees in us, no good deed whatsoever that we did prior to saving us was the cause of our salvation. No righteousness prior to salvation was the basis. Paul the Apostle explicitly teaches this. And some people make a distinction between faith and works in relation to who we are before Christ. But the Bible does not make any kind of distinction that way. It does not say that before Christ, faith is faith and works is works. No, it says that anything generated from man is a work, including faith. Anything generated by man is a work, including faith. The Bible does not make a distinction before Christ to say that faith and works are different. Faith is what you need to exercise from your own heart, and then that is not considered a good deed. The Bible doesn't teach it that way. This is why he's saying here, nothing we have done in righteousness. And look at the sole cause. But according to his mercy, he has used synonyms, he's heaped at least three synonyms here, kindness of God in verse 4, love in verse 4, and now mercy in verse 5. Whatever the term we want to use, whether it's God's kindness, His love, or His mercy, and the Bible uses all of these throughout, that is the cause. That is the basis. That is the reason we are saved. Not because of anything in us. Then he speaks of the means. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What was it that God did in us, started in us, to... Make us go onto the path. What propelled us? What, what motivated us? What was the cause that triggered a reaction inside of us to be believers in Christ? He says in verse 5, by two expressions, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There are many interpretations of this, uh, these two phrases. Uh, firstly, the... The right interpretation. I think the right interpretation is that he is making an allusion to baptism, but he is not saying baptism saves us. He's making an allusion to it as a picture of regeneration, but what he's really talking about is regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's not that some water helps uh, or, or some water is the cause of our salvation. How could it be that this object or this water that's on the, in lakes and oceans and rivers, that water is that which saves us from our sins and cleans us and washes us when we are baptized? 
It, does the Bible anywhere teach that something physical that we do to ourselves or something physical that we experience saves us? No. Nowhere does it teach that. In fact, that's why he's emphasizing in the first part of verse 5 the fact that it's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Because even if we were to be baptized, whether sprinkled as an infant or immersed as an adult, and say the sprinkling or the immersion, that is the cause of my salvation. If I had never been sprinkled or if I had never been immersed, I would not be saved. That's the moment at, at which I was saved from my sins. There are many false interpreters who come to that conclusion on the basis of this verse and other verses like it. But that's not what it's teaching. It's not teaching that at all. What it's teaching is that this is a symbol of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of it, not the cause of it. Let's look actually at another passage 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, which is also a verse that has been misused to support what that either sprinkling or immersion, sprinkling of an infant or the immersion of an adult is the time or the moment when someone is saved from sins because the water is the cause. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 3.20. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Many people just read the first part of verse 21 and repeat the first part of verse 21 and they say, baptism saves you. Baptism saves you. They will preach that. They will teach that. They'll counsel their friends and family. Baptism saves you, so you need to get baptized if they are adults. But let's keep reading. 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to hear about the death and resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. We have to appeal to God for a good conscience. How do we appeal to God for a good conscience? By repentance and faith. By repentance from our sins and faith in Christ. This is the way we appeal to, to God for a good conscience. Because naturally, when we are born, we have an evil conscience, which manifests itself the older we are. So... This is what saves us, he's saying. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not the water of the baptism. And also notice in verse 20. Was Noah himself, he says, and corresponding to that, corresponding to Noah. In other words, he's using Noah as an illustration or a type of baptism. Was Noah saved before the deluge? Yes. Or during the deluge? Was he saved from his sins before the flood or during the flood was he saved from his sins? Before. Before. If we read Genesis chapter 6 very carefully, we'll see that it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. These are phrases in Genesis 6 and in chapter 7 verse 1. This is what God says of Noah before the flood actually occurs. So Noah 
was saved from his sins before he experienced the picture of baptism in the flood. And that's the same thing that Peter's talking about here and the Apostle Paul is talking about in Titus 3, verse 5. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to change a stony heart and make it a tender heart. The Holy Spirit has to take a closed heart and open the heart. Until that happens, there is no faith. There is no repentance. There is no good deeds. There is no true knowledge of God. There is no proper walking with God. It has to start by God choosing to send the Holy Spirit to this one individual or those five over there. That's how He does it. As the wind blows wherever it wishes. John 3. Now when He did do it, when the Holy Spirit did do it for us and everyone else, how does He do it? Does He do it meagerly and miserly? Look at verse 6. No. Whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. When the Holy Spirit came, when the Holy Spirit came and gave us understanding of the gospel, gave us a desire to believe it and repent of our sins, this was given to us richly. He richly poured water upon us. The water of the Holy Spirit. He did not, he was not stingy. He, he was very, very gracious and abundant in the way that He gave us His Holy Spirit. Because we need that kind of grace to change the way we used to be. And we need that kind of grace to live and bear the fruit of the Spirit in a way that's greater than the way we used to be. And also the Holy Spirit is poured upon us richly because what we will experience in heaven forever is something that we cannot imagine or think of. And it will be completely different from the way we used to be. This is why he says it's, uh, that it, the Spirit has been poured upon us richly. Richly. But it does not happen by any means or by any person. It's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ. This salvation is impossible in atheism. There are no saved atheists. It is impossible in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Shintoism, Taoism, anything else, any other religion, even the cults within Christianity, the Mormon cult, the Jehovah's Witness cult, any kind of other cult. It is impossible for salvation to be found in them. Salvation is also impossible in false denominations. And to speak of some major ones, the Roman Catholic denomination. The Roman Catholic denomination. Even recently, the current Pope has announced that Mary is above Christ. Mary is above Christ. That is a denial of the Trinity. Amen. That is a denial of redemption. That's a denial of this person, Jesus Christ, our Savior. She is no co-redeemer. No, not at all. Nobody should ever pray to her and nobody should ever consider her as having any part in our salvation except as a godly vehicle for the humanity of Christ. In that sense, yes. And that's the biblical sense. But she was not uh, immaculately conceived. That is, when she was conceived, she had no original sin, Catholics say. 
Mary had no original sin, and she had to have no original sin for Jesus to have no original sin, they say. No, the scripture doesn't teach that either. Not at all. Only through Jesus Christ and the true Jesus. Not Jesus and Adam God, according to the Mormons. Not Michael the Archangel, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. Or not just the great prophet, according to Islam. No. It has to be the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. At all times, Jesus Christ, the one in Scripture. Then, verse 7. That being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by His grace, we are declared righteous. Though we don't deserve any righteousness, we have a declaration of righteousness reckoned to our account based on the pure righteousness of Christ. We were devoid of righteousness. To be justified, or justification, is a synonym of righteousness. But it is declaring that we are righteous in the sight of God. We are that, and it happens, how? By His grace. Not by His grace plus something in us, but simply by His grace. Kindness in verse 4. Love in verse 4, mercy in verse 5, and now we read of grace in verse 7. Solely from God. He has excluded anything human in our salvation equation. He has excluded it all. Yes, we do produce repentance, we do produce faith, but that is a gift of God. It comes from heaven, and then because we have a new heart, we exercise faith, we exercise repentance. By His grace. And what does God's justifying grace do for us? It makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We inherited folly. We inherited Satan because we were sons of the devil. John 8, 44. We were sons of the devil. But now we have become sons of God. Now we have an eternal kingdom. Now we are heirs and we sit with Christ and we'll sit with Christ forever. We, are, we have a deposit of this rain, but then we will experience it to the full, but we have to have something in the meantime. What happens in the meantime between our salvation and our inheritance? Romans 8.17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We must, as fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of God, we must first suffer and then be glorified. That glorification is what he is meaning by the hope of eternal life. By faith, we know that the world to come is better than this world. By faith, we know that the unseen things are better than the seen things of this world. By faith, we know that in the world to come, it will be exclusive of all sin, all misery, all death, the world to come. This world has those things. This is why true faith puts hope in the world to come. And hope and faith go together. One cannot be separated from the other. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
When we have true faith, it produces hope in the world to come. In things that we don't know. We have not seen. We have not experienced. We have not touched yet. That's what true faith produces. Hope in the world to come. Not hope in this present world. Not hope in wealth. Not hope in people. Not hope in pleasure or anything that we pursue. Nothing like that. It's the world to come. We should be driven constantly with our true faith that has been poured out upon us by God's grace. That faith produces that kind of hope. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.